Hey everyone, you are listening to Mind Body Green's beauty podcast, Clean Beauty School. I am your host and beauty director, Alexandra Engler. Here, we discuss all things beauty taken through the lens of well-being. Thanks for joining. Before we jump into today's episode, I just want to share a few new things up top. So first up, you might have heard me talk about this before, but we are asking anyone who has any lingering beauty questions to go ahead and submit a voicemail. It can be a follow-up question to a specific episode, or maybe you are just curious about an ingredient. Whatever it is, we want to hear from you. So head over to sayhi.chat slash School to submit your questions. I put the link in our show notes so you can easily access it there. You can also find me on Instagram and DM me there. I am at Alex underscore Blair underscore. However you want to get a hold of me, I am all ears for your beauty questions. I also want to take some time to flag some content on our website that I am particularly proud of lately. So June was Pride Month. And we did a series highlighting the many ways the drag community has contributed to the makeup world, both in terms of techniques and types of products. The series just wrapped last week, and the author of this series, our very own Jamie Schneider, chatted with several prominent drag queens about things like banana powder, soap brows, and my favorite of the series, glitter. I loved the series so much, so I just wanted to go ahead and give it a shout out here. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we are chatting with a holistic plastic surgeon. In fact, we are talking to the woman who coined the term over a decade ago. Dr. Shirley Madeira is a board-certified plastic surgeon with degrees from Boston University, Dartmouth, and Brown. She's also studied holistic nutrition and completed the program with the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. For a part of her career, colleagues noted that her quote-unquote holistic approach was very woo-woo. But when you listen to her talk about what exactly holistic plastic surgery means to her, it honestly seems pretty common sense. You know, things like talking about nutrition, getting a good sense of the person's support system and emotional state, electing not to do too much work all at once. I mean, it all sounds very reasonable, right? I will let her explain it more. So without further ado, Dr. Shirley Madeira, welcome. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have this conversation today because I think this is an emerging field that is just so interesting and so of the moment. Holistic plastic surgery. I mean, it is this area that I think so many people are just so curious about, want more information, and I cannot wait to dive into all of the details with you so we can learn more about it. But before we do that, I always love to let the audience get to know you a little bit better as well as, you know, myself get to know you a little bit better. So can you share your story and journey into medicine and then, you know, medicine into plastic surgery? <laughs> <laughs> I will give you the short version, but before I do, before I dish a little bit on my life, let me thank you for having me. I am really grateful for your time and your expertise and the opportunity to share whatever it is that I have to share today. So thank you. 
And as you mentioned, I'm a plastic surgeon. I am the founder of Holistic Plastic Surgery, and we'll get into that a little bit later as to what that means exactly. But who am I? I'm a woman. I am a woman. I think I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a woman on a mission. And my mission, and I believe my purpose, are to help to make the world a more beautiful place inside and out, one person at a time. Culturally, I come from a long line, a lineage of healers and teachers and artists. So I think it may be my turn to be a leader in the healing arts. So that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to do that through communication and working with my hands and working with people one at a time, helping to make the world a more beautiful and equitable place. Did you always knew that you wanted to go into medicine or was that something that came later? I think it evolved over time. I do know that I have, and I still have, this fascination with the human body and how it works. I was always asking why as a child, like, why does this work? Why does that work like that? Why does it have to be that way? <laughs> and that followed me you know, throughout my entire life and hence my fascination with the way the human body works. I am absolutely in love with the human body, with just how we're made and how we work. And by extension, I kind of became obsessed with how we are when we don't necessarily work as well. And initially, that I think that manifested when I danced ballet. I was a prof professional oh. ballet dancer. Oh, and you're I think kidding. that no, I think that totally ties in with me just loving and having a fascination for the human body and how it works and the ability to tell a story non-verbally and the ability to, you know, look a certain way or have an expression and have that relay something to someone. Mm. I just think that's really sexy, <laughs> scientifically yeah. exciting stuff. So that was one of the motivations for me to enter into medicine, at least to find out how much better the body can work and what to do about it when it doesn't work so well. And I also grew up in a family and a culture that believed in helping other people. So I felt that through medicine, I would be able to help people. Yeah. You know, I, when you mentioned you were a dancer, that, that sparked something because I do find that people who are drawn to either, you know, aesthetic dermatology or plastic surgery like yourself, there sometimes there is that creative background, that aesthetic background. So clearly you had that within yourself. You know, you, you were drawn to creativity and beautiful aesthetics on some level. So I'm curious, you know, you, you had this, this appreciation for the human body. And then from there, what drew you into plastic surgery specifically? Was that something that you decided in medical school? You know, what, what was the draw there? Initially, I wanted to become a pediatrician because I love children. Yeah. And then once I got to medical school and did my rotations, I realized that your love of something or love of someone doesn't necessarily translate into what you should do necessarily as a career. I mean, it does in some ways and yet in other ways it didn't, at least in my experience. So I went into medical school thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to be a pediatrician. I'm going to help all these, you know, beautiful children get better. And once I got to the rotation, I realized that my skills were lacking in how to communicate with children. I would go up to little Tommy or little Jane and ask, hi, how are you today? How do you feel? Crickets, like nothing. <laughs> so I, I didn't know how to elicit the responses that I needed to elicit to be able to help the child. And so I thought, okay, I'm not good at this, even though I love children. 
that doesn't necessarily mean I should become a pediatrician because I'm having trouble communicating and, I, and I'm not, I don't know how to relate. And so I left that aspiration behind and I thought, okay, what else do I love? What can I see myself doing, waking up every day doing? How do I want to contribute to the world? And so my next rotation, which I had saved for last because I figured, eh, there's no way I'm doing that, that was general surgery. Okay. And that kicked my butt, actually. <laughs> you know, the not sleeping or the waking up at four in the morning, you know, gunshot wound to the chest and, you know, this, that, and the other. And I thought, oh, yeah, no, this is for the birds. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing pretty about this. And yet I had some amazing mentors in general surgery. And they, they really helped me to realize and recognize that I could do it. And that is wow. so valuable to be able to have had those mentors. And they were men, as most, you know, surgical fields sure. still remain. And so I'm grateful that they were in my life and they helped me to believe that if I had a spark of interest and I had talent for it, that I could do it. And so that's when I said, okay, when I graduate from medical school, I'm going to go into general surgery. I graduated from medical school, got into a general surgery residency. I completed a full, thorough five-year general surgery residency. And during the last couple of years, I thought, okay, this is great. I'm learning a lot. I have, I'm, this is amazing. I, my whole world is just expanding. And yet I felt that there was something that was missing for me. And when I got to my plastic surgery rotation, that wow. was it. I had more mentors and I had an amazing time and realized that through beauty, through the science of beauty, you can mm -hmm. still obviously help people and have tremendous impact. And hence, that was a continuation of my obsession with all things beautiful. So I became a plastic surgeon. I'm an incredible story. And, <laughs> you know, you can really kind of connect the dots throughout the oh, entire yeah. thing, which led you to where you are now. And I, just from hearing it, I can see the areas that probably informed your viewpoint on plastic surgery and beauty at this moment, which is holistic plastic surgery. Okay. But I think we need to explain that for people <laughs> who may not know what exactly you mean. So what do you mean by holistic plastic surgery? Okay. Now this is like a drum roll moment because... <laughs> I'm, first of all, I'm honored that you said that, you know, holistic plastic surgery was this burgeoning field and that the time for it is now 100% full transparency, 100% honesty. I completely made it up. I completely <laughs> made it up. Oh, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. I've yeah. been in practice about 15 years or so. I completely made it up. And the reason why I made it up was because I had this experience that taught me that even though I'm operating on one particular part of the body or, or two parts of the body, the whole body, mind, soul, spirit, psyche, relatives, husband, wife, spouse, partner, pets, they all yeah. experience the experience with you. And so that's mm. when I thought, okay, I've got to change not only my mindset about healing and recovery and preparation, more importantly, but I've got to also shift the way that I approach patients when I'm counseling them or consulting with them about how to prepare for surgery, how to recover from surgery. Do you even want surgery? And so sure. drawing on my culture again and the way that I was brought up, again, with teachers and healers and plant medicine 
doctors. Just drawing on that culture, I thought, okay, the experience is felt systemically by the patient. And there are these multiple dimensions that are being affected by my operation and the anesthesia and the medication. So it is a much more holistic experience than as than previously described. So I made up holistic plastic surgery. It has been my slogan, my mantra, my approach, my philosophy for over one decade. And yeah. I have to admit, I'm I am actually honored yet surprised at the same time when I see that other people have adapted it and adopted it. I mean, there are doctors who have fully taken on the name and called their shows and their podcast and their philosophy, holistic plastic surgery. So initially I was just like, oh my God, like that person copied. But you know what? <laughs> Imitation is a high form of flattery. So yes, I, am, I am grateful that the concept caught on, so to speak, because it really is not a new field. It's actually very yeah. traditional. Mm -hmm. It's so based on the dimensions of wellness, if you, if, you, if you will. So there's spiritual wellness, there's physical wellness, there's you know intellectual wellness, there's social wellness. So all of these things that go into a person's life and bring yeah. them to the point where that person and I are going to the operating room together, all of those things have to be taken into account. And it doesn't mean that anything is done about them per se, but if you're aware of them and you're able to determine preoperatively if any of those dimensions will have an effect on recovery, I think it's pretty important. Yeah. I mean, sometimes just the simple act of acknowledging something yeah. is enough and like speaking to it and, you know, just like having that awareness is enough Absolutely. to change the vibration, you know, how you feel about it, the outcome, the et cetera. So Absolutely. I completely agree with you. But I have to go back to 10 years when you came up with this. I mean, <laughs> what was the reception with other plastic surgeons in this space when you started talking like this? Because I think there is a perception of plastic surgeons that maybe they, you know, don't like they're very like. They get in there, they get the job done, and then they're out. And yeah. that is clearly not your approach. And I'm not saying that all plastic surgeons are like that, but I think right. there is that stereotype. Yes, so yes. what was the reception when you coined this and started talking about this? Yeah. Well, I'm different. <laughs> I, I probably don't look like many or most plastic surgeons, and I pride myself on that. Not that it's better or worse. It's just different. And I think when I first started talking about it, of course, people were just like, she's lost it <laughs> like woo woo <laughs> I and you know I know that they were saying that because I had a patient on whom I performed a breast lift and a tummy tuck yes a breast lift and a tummy tuck and she had gone to a cocktail party where there was another plastic surgeon and she approached that plastic surgeon and said oh my god do you know Dr. Shirley Madare I mean you know she did my operation she's this and that whatever and so that plastic surgeon responded to her yeah, I know. Is she still doing that crazy woot woot stuff? <laughs> so yes, initially and to this day, there are people who think, okay, Dr. Shirley is just not on the same wavelength. And I think that's okay. I'm not for everyone. I recognize that. But also at the same time, while I know there are plastic surgeons and other, other physicians, dermatologists, et cetera, who have grasped the idea of holism, right, in medicine and in their procedures. And they they love it. They incorporate it. They talk about it as if it's, yeah, it's normal. It's it's the standard. 
but it isn't the standard. And again, it doesn't have to be. I'm, I'm not for everyone. But for those people who know, like my tagline is plastic surgery for the discerning person mm. before procedure. And that really does capture mm. it all. Person before yeah. procedure. Who are you? Let's talk about you. What do you want to do? Why do you want to do this? Let's examine you. One side is different from the other. Okay. Right? We get all up in it, if you will. <laughs> all up in it. Well, I mean, that glides so perfectly into my next question, which is, you know, what does a con consultation look like with you? Say I come in and I have been thinking about, I mean, I don't have this issue yet, but let's say I come in <laughs> and I am thinking about some sort of, you know, facelift, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. at, what would you tell somebody who, like, what would that consultation look like, basically? Well, professional opinion, Alex, you don't need that. <laughs> I don't think I need one either. It was the first thing that came to mind. I was like, okay. facelift, sure. <laughs> okay, sure. So my consultations are long. My initial consultations yeah. are long. They are, they can be up to an hour and a half. And sometimes I have gone yeah. over. So I do have to, you know, definitely make time for that. But yes, they're relatively long. And before I even talk about the facelift or the facial asymmetry or the types of, you know, procedures, options that are available to help manage the concern of the day or the c concern that prompted the consultation, again, I just take it back, right? I take it back. Every physician asks about a past medical history. That is standard. But as part of my past medical history, I will also ask, I mean, what other operations have they had in the past? And as part of that medical history, I will ask about nutrition and exercise, maybe a little spirituality. Who's your support system, right? So those types of things, again, I'm grabbing from the different dimensions of wellness to help create a picture that will help me to plot a path with this patient to be able to go to the operating room fully prepared as best as possible, knowing that that's rarely 100%, and in the best position mentally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, emotionally, to be able to deal with the tremendous changes that occur postoperatively. So there is actually a very interesting 2018 study done on post-operative recovery that analyzed how perception and support systems can improve outcome. The study didn't look at plastic surgery specifically and instead looked at surgery in general, but I think it's super interesting to take into account when you embark on surgery of any kind. The researchers noted in the conclusion that when the patients had a sort of can-do attitude, they felt that their recovery was easier. Also super interesting to note was the support system element. So when staff prepared the patients with lots of information prior to surgery, as well as informing the next of kin, they had a smoother recovery process. Finally, having easy availability and means of communication post-surgery was also super important for the recovery process. Perhaps this all sounds like common sense, sure, but it's really important to think about this sort of stuff. You want to be intentional and mindful when embarking on something as serious as surgery. And to be able to, to be able to have that patient really be in their body so that if they feel a twing or a zing or something else, they can know the difference between what a quote unquote normal postoperative twing or zing is versus something that needs attention and is a potential complication. And that discernment to be able to know your body well and to be able to say, okay, to listen to your knowing and to be able to say, this doesn't feel right or doesn't look right or doesn't smell right. 
I need to call Dr. Madeira. I need to call my surgeon as opposed to, oh yeah, they told me, you know, fluid would be gushing out of my, you know, out of my wounds for days. <laughs> right. So I yeah. think that's, I think that's part of it because the patient goes to the operating room with me as a partner. Yes. I'm the surgeon. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm directing what's happening, you know, with the OR staff. Yes, I'm talking to the anesthesiologist. Yes, of course, the patient is asleep. But really having those numerous conversations. So not only is there an initial consultation, there are at least two other visits before surgery so that I can get to know the patients, the patient as best as I can. And just for context for, and for listeners who have never gone down this path, how is that different, would you say, than a more traditional approach to this? Well, I think, again, the, the approach of holism is mm -hmm. also very traditional. Is it the more modern, contemporary, mainstream way to approach? No, perhaps not. Okay. Yeah, yeah, not so that's, mainstream. That's perhaps how I should say it, mainstream. <laughs> it's not so mainstream. Yeah, But I, I think that it, it differs from perhaps the more mainstream consultation in a couple of ways. So one, maybe nutrition is not addressed. Number two, maybe the whole, you know, concept of, you know, psychology or emotional, you know, quotient or emotional intelligence, perhaps those are not addressed. Maybe I'm sure spirituality is probably not addressed at all, right? Not only nutrition, but exercise. Maybe exercise is addressed depending on the type of operation that someone's going to have. Maybe if someone's going to have a tummy tuck or an abdominoplasty, the surgeon will ask, well, you know, do you exercise and you, and you should continue exercise, you know, strengthen your core muscles, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not just, you know, exercising for exercising the core for the tummy tuck. It's also exercising, you know, your entire body and your core for the rhinoplasty or the nose reshaping mm -hmm. operation, right? Everything is connected and everything is related, right? So the more that sure. you are able to be cardiovascularly fit to the best of your ability, and the better your heart can pump, you know, the blood vessels and the oxygen and the healing nutrients, et cetera, to whatever part of the body that needs it. Sure. It truly is a systemic, holistic perspective. You mentioned diet, and I want to ask a quick follow-up on that. What do you what do you talk with a patient about their diet in these consultations? Just because, you know, I am obviously a firm believer that your diet affects your skin, your hair, all aspects of beauty. But, you know, I do think that hearing that from a plastic surgeon is not something that, you know, I typically hear. So like, what, what are you talking with your patients about in this respect? Well, I firmly believe that good nutrition is the first rule of beauty, period. And so when I discuss nutrition, I prefer to say nutrition in my consultations sure. because diet, even, you know, the word diet for me is like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> So when I discuss nutrition with my patients, it is, I'm not a, a formally trained nutritionist. I'm not a formally trained dietitian. I, I had a couple of courses during medical school and that was a while ago. I also actually on my own time did take the integrative nutrition course, which was a year long. So I do have additional sort of training in nutrition, but still it's a vast field, right? And a year or two sure. may, may not be able to do it all. Nonetheless, when I speak with my patients about nutrition, I just talk about what they eat and how they eat and how stress affects what they eat and how much water they drink and do they take mm -hmm. supplements, right? So I try to get all of those answers so that I can help them manage not only preparing for surgery, 
and recovering from surgery, but also maybe having them consider that this big step that they're about to take of having surgery may be the first step that they take to a very long lifestyle change, which may serve them well for many years beyond my operation. That's sure. what I would hope for. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. I want to ask, when, when you have people start to prepare for surgery, what sort of habits and you know, lifestyle routines do you have them adopt? If they smoke, they just have to quit, period, end of story. Period, end of story. If they haven't started exercising, I do ask them to try, even if it's just walking, walk around the block, walk up the street, anything just to, again, get that, you know, that muscle, that cardio, that cardio muscle, just, you know, a little bit stronger. I also ask them to manage, obviously, what they eat. If they have a high sugar diet, you know, cut that out or reduce it significantly. If they're eating fried foods, reduce that significantly. I'm not only looking at lifestyle changes and lifestyle habits preoperatively to help to get a better healing recovery process. But I'm also looking at it in terms of what are the things that I would consider are factors that would contribute to potential complications, right? So potential complications, yes, absolutely are a function of technique, you know, surgeon experience, things that can happen in the operating room, anesthesia, tissue, the patient. But potential complications can also happen way before the patient gets on the operating room table in terms of, does that person drink a lot of alcohol? Does that person, you know, is that person a smoker? Is that person, you know, taking the wrong types of supplements? Is that person taking herbal medications that can interfere with my anesthesia for which there sometimes are no anecdotes, which can really lead to a very dramatic complication, dramatic, right? So we never want to be in a situation where we can't control something knowing that we can't control everything, we like to be as prepared as possible by having a plan A. And if that doesn't work, by having a plan B. And if that doesn't work, by having a plan C. And for me to be able to have those plans, if need, if I need them, I need to know the, the patient as much as possible. Yeah. I want to, this is another preemptive step, <laughs> but in a different way. Yes. And This is what are some proactive steps that people can take when they are starting to think about aging skin and they're not quite ready Mm -hmm. to visit or to have a consultation, but they want to make sure that, you know, they are doing all that they can now so that down the road, if they decide to do something. Yes then they've set themselves up for success. Like what are skincare habits that you, that you encourage people to adopt? Well, I have to say half of my patients come to me for preemptive sort of proactive, you know, techniques. I see a lot of patients in their twenties and thirties and forties and fifties onwards. And even those who may be really good candidates for facelift, for example, they're just not ready for that. Or that's not part of their beauty, you know, paradigm. And that's okay. So I do speak with a lot of patients about what they can do to help sort of (laughs) keep me away for as long as they're willing to, (laughs) as long as they're willing to. As I mentioned previously, good nutrition is the first rule of beauty. In my opinion, hydration is the second rule of beauty. So try to eat well. And I'm not, I usually don't tell people exactly what to eat or what not to eat unless I'm preparing them for surgery because I I ascribe to a particular kind of nutritional plan. But for the most part, I'll say, 
try not to eat too much sugar. Try to avoid, you know, carbonated drinks, sodas, whatever. Try not to have too many fatty foods. The basics, the most that most people know. Try to drink, you know, one and a half to two liters of water a day, right? So all those types of things, green leafy vegetables, you need them for the antioxidants. So other than those types of things, good nutrition, hydration. And then when it comes to specific skin things, then I'll say moisturize, protect, right? Moisturize and protect. So moisturizing is important. Protection is important. So moisturize because other than drinking lots of water, which won't necessarily make your skin hydrated, but it will keep your whole body functioning well and getting rid of the toxins that you otherwise are having difficulty getting rid of, but also protecting your skin from the environment, from stress, right? From mm. smoking, from, from too much prolonged or prolonged sun exposure. All of those things yeah. are equally important. So good nutrition, adequate hydration, moisturize, protect, and of course, exercise. So you're, you can get that blood flow. You can get, you know, the rosiness in your cheeks. If you have, you know, acne, you can make sure that your body knows what to do with it and say, ah, I see a little bit of a problem. I'm going to target it and, you know, get rid of it in a couple of days. Sure. So I saw something on your site and I wasn't quite sure what it was. So I have to ask, yeah. what is DNA and genetic testing for exercise and food preferences? Because I am quite curious about that and maybe something I might be interested in. <laughs> well, it is very, very limited. It's certainly not, you know, full on, full blown yeah. DNA testing because that is totally not feasible for now. Sure. And yes. I think my offering, you know, this sort of quick little test, it's just a saliva test. And, you know, you, I take your sample, I submit it, then you get a full report back. And the report is really about exercise preferences, some dietary preferences, what serves you, what doesn't serve you. And I think my offering them is really just my way of, again, trying mm -hmm. to create a more holistic picture of the patient so that I can help to create a better preoperative and postoperative plan. So it's my way of, of trying to get more of the story of you. Sure. No, that makes sense. I earlier, you know, you mentioned relationship and support system and spirituality mm -hmm. aspect, which I think all kind of live in the same field. Yeah. And I think that is such a, an important part of this, this conversation and one that is so, so often overlooked in mainstream beauty. Obviously, if you're going into surgery, you're going to want a support system, right? Yeah. But I think it's, you know, I think it goes broader than that. So I, I want to dive in a little bit deeper on this aspect. And, you know, why is it, in your opinion, important to have that emotional aspect as part of your process? I learned very early on that beauty, one's perception of it, one's self-perception of beauty is so deep. It is so fundamentally, innately human and deeply psychological and emotional. I remember consulting with a patient and she came in and wanted, I remember one, two, four different operations, which of course I wasn't going to do. But in my conversations with her, this didn't come out initially. It was not until much later in the conversation that I asked her a question and it may have been as simple as, why? do you want to do so many operations? I, it's not safe. And is it a financial issue or why do you need so many operations in such a short period of time? And I didn't think it was a loaded question 
until she broke down and started crying. And I was a bit taken aback and I thought, oh my God, I hope I didn't insult her in any way by saying, you know, no, <laughs> no, we're not yeah. going to do that. So I gave her a box of tissues and I gave her some time and I apologized if I insulted her in any way. And she said, no, that one, her main motivation for getting all of the operations, facial work, breast work, abdominal work, was that her husband left her for a younger woman. And she was trying to fix herself to look better for her husband in the hopes that he would come back. And so at this point, I may have for sure insulted her because I, then I just looked at her and I said, my operation, no matter how good, no matter how fabulous you look, will not bring your husband back. And that was really a ballsy, bold thing for me to say, because I don't know, maybe it would have brought her husband back. But I didn't think it was the, the most helpful or beneficial mindset for my patient no, yeah. to go into surgery, because if any one little thing was not to her satisfaction, it would not have only affected her recovery and her perception of herself, but potentially her whole life and her relationship with this man and maybe other men. So it was heavy and it was deep. And so she taught me, she taught me very early on that it's not just an operation for many people. It's so much more. Yeah. And I wanted to ask this previously, but you know, this has obviously come up here, turning people away and turning people down. This is obviously an instance, you know, where you talked somebody down from four to one. Procedures. <laughs> yeah. These multiple procedures that they wanted to do. And that sparked something maybe like, when do you, when, when do you say no? When do you draw the line? When do you say, listen, I'm not the surgeon for you yeah. or I don't believe this is the right choice for you. I, I am sure that's a hard conversation to have with people. Yeah, yeah. It, def it definitely is, right? Um, you, you want to be able to help people, right? That's one of the main reasons why I went into medicine, to, to help. You want to be able to help people feel empowered about how, how they look, to feel confident. And when I have to say no, and, and I say no probably a little bit too much than my accountant would like, but I say no primarily when the expectations are not in alignment with either my skills, my beliefs in terms of what I think are, you know, or is appropriate for that person's body size, shape, et cetera, without being overbearing and without injecting too much of my personal, you know, thoughts, values, ideas into what the patient should and shouldn't have. So there's a fine line there too. So I say no when I know that I'm not the right surgeon for that patient. I say no when someone is looking for a buttock implants. And this is just recent. Someone was looking for buttock implants. And while I may have done a few, I'm certainly not comfortable, you know, doing that for that patient. So I refer them to my colleagues, right? We as plastic surgeons do not do everything, you know, beautifully. Some of us have are super, super you know, concentrated. Others of us are more generalist. Some of us only operate on two or three parts of the body. So it's important to have that conversation. So I also say no when my gut sort of goes a little. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Or if I see that I'm asking patients questions on the, on the questionnaire, the patient demographics. And I remember one woman in particular, I asked, where are you from? 
or what town were you born? It was something as simple as what's your address? Yeah, maybe that's it. Address. <laughs> and her response was New York, London, Paris, Dubai, Egypt. Whatever. I mean, it was like 20 countries. And I thought, OK. OK, so this is going to potentially be a situation. Um, she did become my patient, but not for very long. And then a patient that I initially said no to off the bat was another question on the questionnaire. Have you had any previous surgery? And she answered, yes, lip filler. And yet when I looked at her, it was quite obvious that there were many more operations that she mm -hmm. had undergone. So there has to be trust, bilateral, both sides. There has to be you know, mutual understanding and respect. And there has to be honesty. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that's not my strength or I really don't do buttock implants. So I would hope that you could be honest with me and say, yeah, I've had like four or five operations in the past sure. two years. <laughs> because we're working together after all. We're a team. Totally. We're a team. Yeah. And, you know, it's the history that they come to you with is going to affect the work that you can do. And, you know, Clearly. you obviously are, you, you mentioned this earlier, perfectionist. <laughs> well, nothing can be perfect. No. <laughs> you, you know, you seem like somebody who holds high standards for yourself. So I'm sure you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're not going to have the best outcomes. Yes. Um, we, we all try. We all try. I had one of my mentors in plastic surgery tell me, you know, because I'd be in the operating room just trying to, you know, tweak every yeah. little thing. And he would just say to me, perfect is the enemy of great or perfect is the enemy of good enough. Stop it. So, <laughs> oh, I love that line. It's honestly, I, I use that quite a bit, even in yeah. my own in my own work. It's yes. it's a, an important lesson to remember. It's universal. I, I wouldn't. It is. I I want to learn about your aesthetic. I I would assume that since you have the lens of holistic plastic surgery, then you tend to have a more natural aesthetic in your work. Am I correct in that assumption? Yes, I uh, people tend to come to me because they want, you know, a natural look, knowing that, you know, I could put 10 syringes of filler in, <laughs> in your face and it will still look natural, I assure you. But that being said, while that I while I'm known for that, so to speak, I do also have lots of patients who are in the entertainment industry and mm -hmm. models and and I would say people who are models, they tend to want maybe sometimes a more natural look. Whereas people who are in entertainment and et cetera, sometimes, at least in my practice, tend to want a bit more glamour. So, yes, I'm able to do both, thank goodness, and, and a lot more. In terms of plastic surgery, what trends are happening right now that you're seeing? Because, you know, we do tend to see ebbs and flows in the plastic surgery yeah. space of what's yeah. popular. Yes. What are you seeing right now? You know, it's very interesting because I have noticed that sometimes what's happening on the fashion runways actually, you know, seeps into plastic surgery. So sure. recently, the, the, the last set of shows was all about the midriff, right? And the core and like mm -hmm. everybody was, everyone was bearing belly. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do for myself? <laughs> no more pizza on Friday nights. And so what is what seems to be you know the trend now what's trending now in plastic surgery is sculpting that core sculpting the belly right whether it's through liposuction a tummy tuck a mini tummy tuck you know through mm -hmm. the you know devices cryo whatever it is it's all about the core today <laughs> sure. this time around yeah. it will change 
it will change. I, I am sure it will change, but I think you're spot on on that because, you know, we're seeing lower, you know, Wait, like low yeah. rise jeans are low coming rise. back. We and I'm a high like rise a girl. Oh my gosh, same. <laughs> so I think you're spot on that, you know, we were coming back to the, the era of showing off your tummy. <laughs> and that's surgically and non-surgically. This is very exciting. I, I love the innovation in plastic surgery and non-surgically, non-surgically, it's all about, you know, the, the influx of the new types of injectables, the new fillers, mm. right? So whether, whether this filler lasts longer, whether this is more of a volumizer, whether this is more sort of line specific. So yeah, there are always new fillers coming down the pipeline. So that's very exciting. So yeah, I'm actually curious about that. And I hadn't intended to talk about this, but with, with fillers, do you tend to use different fillers for different needs? And like, would you even use different fillers on the same person for different needs? How do you approach that? Absolutely. So after assessing a face and obviously talking about the patient's, you know, desires and what they're looking to get, Yes, I can definitely, and I have for sure, used different fillers in one face. It depends on the filler characteristics, right? How thick mm. it is, longevity, the filler's ability to interact with certain types of tissues on the face, where you're placing it, how much, you know, what effect do you want? Is it volume? Is it line specific? Do, oh my gosh, there's so many different things. But yes, I yeah. have been known to put in different types of fillers in okay. one face for sure. <laughs> for sure. Fascinating. Yeah, Fascinating. for sure. Different layers, different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Pretty so fabulous. when when someone is ready to visit a plastic surgeon and, you know, maybe they don't have access to you. So <laughs> what sort of things do you tell people or would you advise people to look for as either green flags or red flags in terms of, you know, finding somebody that's right for them. Right. Well, there have been tons of articles written about how to find the best plastic surgeon for you, what to look for, types of credentials, all of that. Yes, of course. I think, though, that's something that perhaps has not been stated, and it's something that I believe in, and I use it as a guide, is listen to your gut. Because you can always hear, you know, as plastic surgeons, we always want to tell you the risks the benefits, the potential complications of anything that we do, of any procedure. We, of course, are going to talk up how fabulous you're going to look, but it's also equally important to know about the adverse effects or the potential and the potential complications, right? Not an easy conversation to have, but absolutely important. Aside from all of that, right? So make sure you get the information. But I also think once you meet with this person after the consultation, Listen to your gut. How did you feel? Is this, sure. the, is this the person you want to take on your journey? Of course, you anticipate everything's going to be fabulous, you know, 10 out of 10 results, of course. But there's also a possibility, of course, there's always a possibility that it may not be 10 out of 10. It might be a 9 out of 10 or maybe even a 7 out of 10, God forbid, any worse. Is this the person that you would feel comfortable with in any yeah. scenario? for yeah. whatever is important to you. For some people, it's credentials. For some people, it's they have to have done, you know, 10,000 operations, right? For other people, sure. it's, you know, bedside manner. So you have to take all those things into consideration. But I do think that one thing that perhaps is not mentioned is listen to your gut. What does your gut say? Yeah. More yeah. so than your head, what does your gut say? I, I think that's great advice. You know, I your gut knows a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, oh, yes, yeah. it does. Okay. I have to ask this question. You do not have to answer. You can plead the fifth. 
but <laughs> who do you think has good work done? <laughs> oh, well. I'm not at liberty to say if I have worked with any celebrity, so I won't say anything. And I have not worked with this celebrity at all. But I do think if she has had any work, I do think <laughs> I do think JLo has. I think I mean, she looks great. I think she, yes, she does. She, she, I'm not, I have to be careful what I say here. She does look different from what she looked like many years ago. But in her transitions and transformations and skincare, wink. <laughs> that she's doing she manages to stay consistent with how she looks and there's not too much drama in terms of eccentricity or extremism in her look so she's managed to you know find her sweet spot in terms of her beauty regimen and how she wants to look and she's able to stay there and and just glow so if yeah. she's had any work done, if she's had it, I, if she's, if she's had, had it, it, I agree that it's good work if she's had it. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. <laughs> okay. So speaking of skincare, yes. what topicals do you like? You know, that can be in what you use or what you tell people to use. I am such an ingredients nerd. So for me, it's not really about the brand, even though... <laughs> I have this segment on my podcast called 15 Minutes of Fab where I do product reviews and I give it a score. Yeah. But for me, it really is all about the ingredients. And personally, I'm a huge fan of vitamin C because it's a skin mm. lightener and a skin brightener. Retinol because it is a really good exfoliant and also a skin lightener. And hyaluronic acid because who doesn't like a little plump? Who doesn't sure. like a little plump? <laughs> and I love facial oils, refined facial oils. Love, okay. love, love, love. Like, okay, love. Oh, that's good to hear. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people who are professionals in the skincare space are they either love oils yeah. or they do hey, not. That's right. And I, I definitely like love a good oil at night. So, yeah. I, I'm always glad to hear when people are on my side. Yeah. <laughs> well, you shouldn't necessarily okay. use the oils all the time, every season, day and totally. night. So you really. Totally. You really have to wake up in the morning and look at your skin and ask yourself, what yes. is my skin telling me today? What did I do yesterday or what did I eat last night that is affecting how I'm looking today? And what, how, what can I do to counterbalance that if it needs counterbalancing at all? Sure. You know, we have talked so much about how you help other people be their best and take care of themselves and, you know, care for their bodies. So I have to ask you how you take care of yourself. <laughs> you know, they say doctors are the worst patients. <laughs> I am, it is very important to me, right? And it's important to me for a number of reasons because I want to be healthy. I want to live my best life ever is part of my philosophy and my holistic approach that I would love to be able to help my patients to live their best life ever and put their best face forward. But I have to walk the walk. Right. Not just talk the talk. I have to walk the walk so that I understand from a human perspective, from a woman's perspective, that sometimes it's hard work. <laughs> it's bloody hard work. And yet there's there's joy in that. Right. Sometimes. So how I take care of myself is I'm very much invested in self-care. So, yes, I have my beauty routines morning and evening. Absolutely. I meditate. I try. I try to get in 20 minutes once a day. And if not once a day, every other day, because I'm not so good okay. at that work in progress. I'm sure. a yogi. So I love yoga. Good. I also became certified and became a yoga teacher. So it is important to me to move. 
right? I do love to exercise. And so whether that's tennis or horseback riding or taking my dogs for a walk, I, I do love to exercise. Not always. I'm not a huge fan yeah. of cardio, even though I know it's so important, but I struggle <laughs> with that. I mean, full transparency, I struggle with that. And other than that, in terms of self-care, I try to, first rule of beauty, I try to eat well. I yeah. do allow myself to quote unquote cheat, but it's not really cheating. I live by the 80-20 rule. 80% of the mm. time, I do the best that I can. I try to eat well, blah, 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 lots of kale. And a quick story about kale. I think there was, you had asked a question about how people consider my holistic philosophy. And there was a young plastic surgeon who was talking to her friend about, you know, holistic plastic surgery. And she said, kale is not going to lift your face. <laughs> and she's right. It won't. But when you do get that facelift, I think it sure as heck will help you to heal well. But anyway, <laughs> so yes, I do try to eat well. I do drink water a liter and a half to two liters a day. And I just try to be the best person that I can be. I try to radiate love and it's not easy yeah. to do. It's just not easy to do. And it sounds completely crazy. Woop, woop. But sometimes, you know, we all know there's pain, right? There's pain in life. It's normal. Accept it. Pain is a part of life. But suffering doesn't have to be. And so I just try to be the best person that I can be. And I try to, be, you know, be a compassionate person. And I just try to lead with love. I'm not good at it. <laughs> I am fundamentally flawed. But again, work in progress. I try. Well, I can say that I am feeling the love radiating even though even though this was through a laptop screen i felt it so i think you're doing something right thank you thank you so very Doc much of course dr shirley thank you so much for joining me today this was such a great conversation i think it's great for people who are interested in perhaps getting plastic surgery and even people who aren't yes aren't interested at all and may never be interested i think there's stuff welcome. for all of us to learn okay. so thank you so much for your time i really really appreciate it and thank you, Alex, for your intelligent questions, your insightful research that you've done for leading this conversation, not only with, you know, intelligent questions, but with joy. So thank you so very, very much. You are beautiful inside and out. And I hope you truly know that. Oh, well, thank you. So are you. <laughs> thank you very, very much. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want more beauty content, you can find it at mindbodygreen.com or any of our social channels. And finally, if you liked this podcast, don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.